Good everyone. Well done, Eskin, with those names. <laughs> Let's pray before we look at this together. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, read in our earlier reading from 1 John uh, that your spirit is a spirit of truth, and we thank you that your spirit uh, worked to produce your word, uh, and we thank you that all scripture, including this uh, somewhat obscure part of the history of the Old Testament people of God, that all scripture is useful for teaching us, for correcting us, for rebuking us, for training us in righteousness. And so we pray that your word might do that work in us tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Australia used to be uh, world-renowned for the uh, stability of our democracy. We elected prime ministers and then on the whole, we uh, let them stay in for a long, long time. That was the way Australia used to be. Do you remember a few years back though, we became a bit of a laughing stock for the way we just kept turfing out one prime minister after another. Uh, we had Kevin Rudd, then we had Julia Gillard. I forgot that Kevin then got another run for 83 days. Uh, and then Tony Abbott, then Malcolm Turnbull, then Scott Morris, it just went on and on. And at the time, the English press actually made fun of Australia. They had all these headlines about, you know, Australian people wake up every morning, what's the first question they ask? Who's the Prime Minister today? And all that sort of thing. There is something at the moment of a sense of justice that in England, they just had a Prime Minister that lasted 40 days. So half of what Kevin Rudd lasted. Uh, but I think part of the frustration for many of us with politics is when a new person takes over, they're exactly the same as the old person. Uh, and so it's person after person. The personnel changes, but nothing actually changes. There's plenty of change in people, but no change in policies. Uh, that is nothing new in the world. Modern Australian or English politics is nothing new in the world. In our chapters in Two Kings today, you actually get a sense of that same monotonous turnover of leaders all through Israel and Judah's history. We're looking at uh, chapter 14 that we read then and chapter 15 as well, so have it open. But what you're going to see is it's just one king after another and the problem is each king is as bad or worse than the one they replace. Uh, and so what we're actually seeing in these chapters is what I'm calling the, the slow motion car crash of Israel. Uh, you read about each king, you are willing them to be the one who will just turn back to God, who will just be half decent, if you like. But it's like the car is on a wet road. I pray you've never had this experience. It's like the car is on a wet road and the brakes are locked and there is nothing you can do and it's just inexorably sliding into the car crash of God's judgment. Now, of course, these chapters are interesting history. They're interesting stories. Uh, you can read them just for historical interest. You can sit in judgment over these awful kings and make fun of them and say, I wouldn't have done the same in their situation. But actually, I want to tell you, these chapters are written as a warning to us. So as we start, just have this in mind. They're written as a warning to us to never forget the promises of God like they did and a warning to us to never presume on God's grace like they did. So let's get into it. So my first heading, it's uh, King Amaziah of Judah versus King Jehoash of Israel. So we just read about King Amaziah before in 2 Kings 14, and he actually starts off like he's one of the better kings of Judah. And remember, Judah is the southern kingdom. Israel's the northern kingdom, Judah's the southern kingdom. Come with me to verse 3. It says, he, Amaziah, did what was right in the Lord's sight. That is actually a great start. There are not actually many kings in this book who they've, they've said that about. In fact, I wouldn't mind if people said that about me at the end of my life. Phil did what was right in the Lord's sight. 
Then down in verse 5, it tells us he goes and brings the people who had murdered his father. You might remember a couple of weeks ago, his father was assassinated. He brings the people who did that to justice. More than that, though, he actually does it with justice. See, in the ancient world, what, what generally happened was if someone did something to you, you did double to them. You, you took revenge. And in fact, not just the ancient world, that's many parts of our world today. You kill my father, I'll kill your whole family. And it ends up in this awful war that goes on for generations. But no, he obeys God's law. He just punishes the people who actually did the crime. So Amaziah is starting really well. Even what he does in verse 7 is a positive moment. Have a look at verse 7. See, he actually wipes out the armies of Edom, which sounds pretty horrible to us, but Edom has always been attacking God's people. Edom has always been the enemy of God. They've, they've stolen, in fact, the land they had off God's people back in 2 Kings chapter 8. So Amaziah here is actually doing what a good king is meant to do. He's reclaiming the land God had given his people, and that's what they're meant to do. So he seems to start very well. But actually, from the beginning, there are warning signs that show us he's not as good as we might think. Look back with me at verse 3 again. It says, He did what was right in the Lord's sight, but not like his ancestor David. He did everything his father Joash had done, yet the high places were not taken away, and the people continued sacrificing and burning incense on the high places. The Amaziah did some good things. He himself, it seems, at least at the beginning, worshipped God rightly in Jerusalem. But he wasn't like David. You've got to remember, David is the yardstick. David is, is the king against which all other kings are measured. See, what did David do? For all his sin, for all his faults, what did David do? He worshipped God with all his heart. He did not tolerate false religion. He didn't even just worship God correctly himself. He made sure Israel worshipped God correctly. He led the people in following God. So yes, Amaziah does some good things but he lets false religion keep going in Judah. I've been reading a, a history of Europe. I just read random books and I've picked up this book, A History of Europe at the moment. And I've been loving reading how all the different kings of all the different countries get their different titles. So there's Richard the Lionheart. You want to follow a king called Richard the Lionheart. Don't you? It just says, that guy's worth following. There's a guy, Solomon the Magnificent. Now, he gave it the title to himself, so I don't think he was quite as good, but John the Black Prince, it gives you a bit of an insight into, you know, he's probably not the nicest guy. I would call Amaziah, Amaziah the Half-Hearted. That's what he is. He is Amaziah the Half-Hearted. And the thing to remember is God is not interested in half-hearted disciples. Uh, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus says, be willing to lose your life for me in the gospel and you will gain eternal life wholehearted devotion is what God desires. More importantly, it's what God deserves from his people. And in fact, in my experience, half-hearted disciples end up going one way or the other. Very few people go through life as half-hearted disciples of Jesus. They either end up wholehearted disciples of Jesus or not disciples of Jesus as all, at all. And that is what happens to Amaziah. So what happens to him? Well, he gets too big for his own boots. He thinks, I've wiped out the Edomites. Now let's have a go at the Israelites. So look at verse 8. It says, Amaziah then sent messengers to Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, come, let us meet face to face. Now that phrase there is a euphemism for let's have a fight. It's not come and let's have a talk, not come, come over for a coffee. It's come, I want to go to war with you. Now, politically, understand, this was an incredibly stupid thing to do. 
The reality is Israel was always bigger and stronger than Judah. Do you remember when they broke up, how many tribes were with Judah? Well, sort of one and a half. How many up here? A lot more. They had a lot more people and at that time when you could make all your people go to war, you have a lot bigger armies. So this is politically stupid. It's militarily stupid. Worse than that, it's incredibly ungodly. You see, Judah and Israel were meant to fight against Edom and Aram because, because those countries were the enemies of God. They, they, were, they were the people who were oppressing God's people. As hopeless as Israel was, it was still God's people. Israel and Judah are meant to be brothers, not enemies. See, think about this as we've been going through 1 and 2 Kings. Even when Israel was at its worst, the good kings, or maybe the the better kings, because there aren't many good ones, but the better kings of Judah, the ones that got it, always went to help Israel when Israel was in trouble. So remember Jehoshaphat, he went and took his armies to war to support Israel, not Amaziah. It seems he's gotten too big for his boots. And in fact, 2 Chronicles tells us by this time, Amaziah had actually totally turned away from God and was worshipping idols. And so Amaziah of Judah calls out Jehoash for a fight. Now, Jehoash is no godly king himself. So it's not like bad guy versus good guy here. It's bad guy versus even worse guy. So come and have a look at what it says about Jehoash. Go back to chapter 13, verse 11. Flick back a chapter. Chapter 13, verse 11, it says that Jehoash did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He did not turn away from all the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit, but he walked in them. So it's not like Jehoash is a good guy. To his credit, though, he tries to talk uh, Amaziah out of this. He says, you realise you're a little thistle and I'm a big tree. Now, I don't think he had the gift of telling stories. I think his parable's a bit convoluted and all, all that sort of thing. But but he's saying, I don't think you need to be a rocket scientist to get the point he's making. He's saying, I'm going to crush you. Don't do this, little brother. But Amaziah is like that little kid in, in the playground who thinks they can keep taunting the bigger kid and nothing's going to happen. You know what I'm talking about? I was always the bigger kid at school, no surprises. But eventually, I can tell you, eventually the bigger kid has enough. And what happens to the little kid? He goes home in tears. And that is what happens. Sadly... Sadly, Jehoash doesn't just defeat King Amaziah. That would have been right and just. He does something awful. Look from verse 13. Then says, King Jehoash of Israel captured Judah's king Amaziah, son of Joash, son of Ahaziah of Beth Shemesh. Then Jehoash went to Jerusalem and broke down 200 yards of Jerusalem's wall from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate. He took all the gold and silver, all the articles found in the Lord's temple and in the treasuries of the king's palace and some hostages then he returned to Samaria. And you see why that was so awful? See, that is what you do to a pagan country that you destroy. That's what you do to to the gods and the temples of, of your enemies. But this was the city and the temple of his own God. This is this is actually getting worse and worse in two kings. You see, this was the king of Israel saying, I'm going to go and destroy the God of Israel's city, and worse than that, I'm going to go and loot the God of Israel's temple. This is just another in a long list, but perhaps the worst of horrible moments in two kings. But what's interesting here is, here's where I want us to think about it, what's interesting here is Jehoash does this, strides into the temple of God, steals all the gold, steals all the treasures, and what happens to him? 
nothing happens to him. Remember earlier in the Bible how when they were actually bringing the Ark of the Covenant up to the temple and it slipped a bit and one guy put his hand on it and what happened to him? Dropped dead on the spot. Remember in the Bible what it says should happen to someone who just even walks in to the temple of God inappropriately? But nothing happens to Jehoash. He doesn't drop dead on the spot. He goes home and he actually accomplishes things and his kingdom grows and yes, he eventually dies but he's buried in glory with his fathers, no disgrace. And then worse than that, the northern kingdom of Israel that's just done this horrible thing actually thrives for a while. So it comes to my second heading, which is why do the evil thrive? Now, I want to show you this so we're going beyond what Askin read for us before. So come with me past that part of chapter 14 where we finished uh, and come with me to verse 23. And what you see here is we meet the next king. Jehoash eventually dies and his son, leave that off for a second, Tom, uh, Jehoash actually dies, and his son, Jeroboam II, takes over. Now understand this, he was set up to fail, because who is the father of the sin of Israel? Jeroboam. Every time it says how evil they are, it says they walk in the ways of Jeroboam. From his birth, they said, we want him to be Jeroboam II. There, you get an idea of where they're going here. But here's the thing, Jeroboam is the most successful king since Solomon in the Bible. He reigns for 41 years, which is an incredibly long innings, given they were killing each other off, and he reclaims all the territory they'd lost over the years. So look down at verse 25, it says, he restored Israel's border from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah. Then go down to verse 28, it says, the rest of Jeroboam's reign, along with all his accomplishments, the power he had to wage war, and how he recovered for Israel, Damascus and Hamath, which had belonged to Judah. Now those, those place names don't mean a lot to us. But if you just look at this map that Tom's going to put up for us, I'll show you what happened. So there is Israel and there is Judah on the left before this all went on. But then see all that, that darker green with the red line about it. He conquered all that extra territory. That's how well he did. So in fact, Israel was never as big as this other than at the time of Solomon. That's the only time Israel has been. The only time Israel had been a legitimate world power other than the time of Solomon is right at this point under Jeroboam II. But here's the problem. Go back to verse 24, verse 24 of chapter 14, and look at the description of Jeroboam. It says, he, Jeroboam, did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He did not turn away from all the sins Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. So here we have Jeroboam is evil. He's not a good king. He's still worshipping golden calves on mountaintops, just like God had forbidden. Jeroboam's evil. And yet God blesses him and blesses his reign. And we, with our sense of justice and fairness, we go, how can that be? But we've seen this all through 1 and 2 Kings, if you think about it. Generally, sometimes, just occasionally actually, the bad kings get what they deserve, but often they don't. And sometimes the better kings, occasionally they seem to go well, but most of the time what happens to them? They cop it. There just doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it. You can't work out why, why does that person succeed and that person fail? It's never on the basis of he's godly and he's not. It doesn't work that way. And here is the reality. That is true of all of history. Often bad people get away with it and even seem to thrive and even seem to do better. Whereas often faithful people face hardship and struggle and sometimes never prevail. How can that be? Why does God let that happen? Well, it's just a reminder to us that often 
Justice does not come in this life. Justice does come eventually. When Jesus returns, there will be justice. But generally in this life, justice is lacking. And in fact, it is a real mistake to judge things on the basis of how well people are doing in this life. Sadly, I hear Christians do this all the time. So so they look, good things are happening to someone and, and they say, oh, that is God's blessing or that's justifying the way that person lives their life. Uh, or look at how bad things are happening to that person. Uh, they, they must be unfaithful. There, there must be something wrong. They must deserve it. It must be God's curse on that person. We must not do that. If you remember, if you read the book of Job, that is what Job's friends did and God condemns them for it. They, they, they said, there must be some reason you're suffering. There wasn't any reason. You see, sadly, in our fallen, broken world, this side of Christ's return, evil often prospers. The faithful will often suffer. So don't try to judge history, and in particular, don't try to judge people on the basis of how things are going for them or for us at that point of time. So how do you understand history? How do you interpret events? And how do we understand what's going on here in 2 Kings? Well, my third point... We can only understand any events when we look through the lens of God's promises. See, why did God not just knock Jeroboam off his throne? I mean, he was evil. Why not just get rid of him? Well, it actually goes back to 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 30. Don't go back there now, you can look it up later on. But 2 Kings 10, verse 30, God had promised his great-grandfather Jehu that his line would last four generations. That's why it makes a point with each of these kings, he's the son of and the son of, to remind you, oh, okay, he's one of his. You see, because Jehu did what God asked him to do and wiped out the line of Ahab, who were even worse. And because of that, God says, I make you this promise, four generations of your family will sit on the throne. And more than that, look at chapter 14, verse 25 again. It says, he, Jeroboam, restored Israel's border from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah according to the word the Lord the God of Israel had spoken through his servant the prophet Jonah son of Amittai from Gathhetha for the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter there was no one to help Israel neither bond nor free however the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel under heaven so he delivered them by the hand of Jeroboam son of Jehoash. Now, I love this for two reasons. The first of all is that prophet is Jonah. So this is, this is where, you know, the guy with the fish and Nineveh and all that sort of thing. This is where his moment is in history, which I love. But more than that, what I really want you to see is, do you see how God made this promise? And why did he make the promise? Was it because he des- they deserved it? There was no one in Israel worshipping God at this point or next to no one. Why did God make this promise? Out of grace because he loved them. God made a promise through Jonah out of compassion for his people. And sometimes God does that. He uses evil people to bring his grace. He uses an evil person like Jeroboam to fulfill his promises to his people who he loves. And this is the point here. You are not God. I'm not God. So we are not omniscient. That means all-knowing. We don't know everything. We can't actually understand why things happen in the world because we don't have everything in our mind like God does. We're not omnipotent. We're not all-powerful. We can't change things. Do not fall into the trap of thinking you can know everything. 
that you know better than God, that you can interpret history. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that when you see good things, whatever that is, happening to someone, that, that, that somehow that means they're in the right, or when bad things are happening to someone else, that that means they must have done wrong. In fact, it is often the opposite. You see, how do you understand what's going on in our world? How do you understand what's happening to you? It's God's Word, and especially God's promises that we need to let interpret history for us. I want to tell you, as Christians, we have some wonderful promises to help us make sense of our experience. One of the most wonderful is the promise of Romans 8. We looked at this in our gospel team on Wednesday night. Look at Romans 8, 28. It says, we, Christians, people who love Jesus, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Now, that is not a promise that only good things are going to happen to Christians. In fact, the opposite is often true. Uh, those, another promise of Scripture is those who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, what this is, is a promise that God uses everything that happens to us to bring about our eternal good. That's what it is. God uses everything that happens to ensure that His children end up in glory. You see, that's the promise. That is the truth that enables us to deal with whatever happens to us in this life, good or bad. The promise that God did not even spare his own son, so he will not fail to see things through for his children and bring you to glory. There's one more promise I want us to see. Come back with me to 2 Kings 14, but now particularly chapter 15 that we didn't read before. So flick over to chapter 15. This is my final point. God's promise of final judgment. There's actually one promise of God that undergirds this whole book of two kings. And it actually goes all the way back to Moses. So back to the beginning of the story. In the book of Deuteronomy, just before Israel enters the promised land, God says to them through Moses, I'm giving you this wonderful gift. You can live here forever if you will just keep my covenant. If you'll just keep worshipping me. If you just won't turn to idols and just worship me alone, you'll have this forever. But God says, if you break my covenant, if you turn away and you worship other gods, eventually I will judge you. You will lose this land I've given you if you don't turn back to me. Now you can read about that, those promises in Deuteronomy 28 to 30. Go and read it during the week. And I want to tell you what we are witnessing in these chapters, I've called it the slow motion car crash. What we are witnessing is Israel doing everything God warned them against all those years ago in Deuteronomy? And so Israel is just sliding towards judgment. So I want you to see, if you notice that repeated line for each of the kings of Israel, did you notice how when it described Jehoash and then when it described Jeroboam II, it did it in exactly the same way. It said they did evil in the Lord's sight. They did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam. Exactly the same. Turn now to chapter 15. I'm just going to fly through the kings because they're like Australian Prime Ministers, one after the other. So first of all, King Zechariah, look at verse 9. What does it say? He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, as his fathers had done. He did not turn away from the sins Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. Exactly the same as the two before then. There's King Shalom. They would have said that about him, but he only had a month before they killed him, so he didn't get a chance. Then, keep going, King Menahem, look at verse 18. It says, he did 
what was evil in the Lord's sight. Throughout his reign, he did not turn away from the sins Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. Then King Pekahiah, look at verse 28, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Then King Pekah, look at verse 28, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight. As you actually read, sure, I hope you've been reading two kings, it's actually monotonous. Your English teacher would have said to you, try a bit of variation. Stop repeating the same line over and over again. People will think you're copying. It'll show up when they run it through the computer that you're doing plagiarism. You, you know, it, it's just monotonous. It's boring. That's how it's meant to be. The writer has on purpose said, I'm going to use the same line to describe every one of these kings, one after the other, because I want to remind you of what God promised he would do back in Deuteronomy. I want to remind you that we are just waiting for the judgment to come. And here is the thing, the only reason God's judgment hadn't come, the only reason he he didn't do it at Jehoash, he didn't do it at Jeroboam, the only reason is because of God's grace, because God does not delight in judgment. God gave them chance after chance to turn back. You cannot read the Old Testament and think God loves to judge people. He is so patient And they sat there complacently thinking, aren't things going well? Look, we're winning battles. We're extending the kingdom. God gave them chance after chance to turn back to him. He sent the two greatest prophets who've ever lived, Elijah and Elisha, and they only got about 7,000 converts out of the whole nation. We're going to see next week. Finally, God's hammer will drop on Israel. Now, it is easy to look back and read this and sit in judgment on them and say, why were they so stupid? I would have been one of the faithful ones. And, you know, it's easy to stand in judgment. But I want to tell you, our world is in exactly the same position as Israel was back then. Our world around, it has been for 2,000 years, our world is on in a slow-motion car crash, sliding towards God's inevitable judgment, thinking everything is okay when the hammer is ready to drop. God has promised... Jesus is returning to judge our world. That is what his resurrection declares. The Apostle Paul, preaching in Acts, thanks Tom, said this. He said, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And what is the only reason Jesus has not returned? What is the only reason given to us in Scripture that it's the same reason he delayed in judging Israel? Despite all those kings that deserved it so much, the only reason is because God is gracious and he longs for people to repent and he longs for people to find salvation. Look at what God says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. We understand that is why this time we live in exists. It's why God didn't wrap it up 100 years after Jesus or 200 years after Jesus. It's why we are where we are. But so many people in our world are like Israel in the time of two kings, just oblivious to what is happening. So what are we going to do with this? I want to challenge you in two areas. Firstly, let's not be complacent ourselves. That's the first thing. Let's not ourselves be half-hearted. We are people who know God. We are people who know his Saviour, our Lord Jesus. As people who know Jesus, let's not get distracted. 
Don't get distracted by the idols of this world. Let's live in the light of God's promises. Let's live knowing the promises of God. What does that mean? It means live with the fact that the judgment day is coming in our minds. Not because we fear the judgment day, because we have salvation in Christ, but live knowing this world is ending. We are looking forward to something better. So live for it. Live your life storing up treasures in heaven, not here where they will burn away. Then secondly, let's love our world enough to warn them about what is coming. Without Christ, people are just drifting towards judgment. Do you find this overwhelming sometimes? I do. I, sometimes, especially before COVID, there's not as many people in the city now. Before COVID, when I'd go into the city, and you know, you'd stand there on, on George Street sometimes, and you look, and there's just ants wandering around, none with a smile on their face, all looking like the world is going to end, but they don't believe it. And they're looking around, living meaningless lives with no hope, oblivious to the future, and just going on. And then some people are getting married and, and some people are having children, some people are changing jobs and all this sort of thing, but it's all meaningless because without Christ, people are just drifting towards judgment. So let's play our part in inviting them to come and find the hope and the salvation and the meaning that we have found in Jesus. That is what we must do, given that Christ is returning to judge. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this part of Scripture that even with its horrible description of sin, reminds us that you are gracious. And we thank you that even though we deserve your your judgment, you have sent your Son to be our Saviour. But Father, we look at our world And we see that so many are just sliding towards that judgment day. So, Father, we pray that we would love our world enough to want to share the good news of Jesus so that they might be ready for his return. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.